Hey, it's Dr. Jamie, and let's talk about the importance of salt and electrolytes. If you're living the low-carb life like me, your requirements are actually much higher. And there's only one source that we trust in our home, and it's the people and products at Redmond Real Salt. They keep us coming back for more every time. Real salt's an all-natural, unrefined sea salt harvested from an ancient ocean. It's full of natural minerals that make it healthy, delicious, and pink or red-looking. They're also the best-selling brand in America's health and food stores. Redmond Real Salt is so pure, it's free of pollutants and microplastics found in many other natural refined salts. The Redmond Salt Deposit is in Redmond, Utah, where the team enjoys award-winning work conditions and generous pay. And since they own and control the whole process, you can be sure that Real Salt comes to you through their world-class production facilities in its unrefined, mineral-rich, delicious state, exactly as nature intended. Redmond has amazing natural products, including salt, electrolytes, toothpaste, and so much more. So check out the entire line at www.redmond.life, where you can use my code DRFIT, that's D-R-F-I-T, for a discount on all Redmond Real Salt and Relight products. to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast. It's so wonderful to have you here on this beautiful Monday. So I have an awesome mom guest on the podcast today. I met her a few years ago through her work doing cattle ranching. I want to introduce everybody. Kara Smith from Colorado Craft Beef. Welcome to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. So I met Kara and Jeff a number of years ago and was able to visit their ranch, which was a super cool experience. But Kara, for people who don't know you, um, tell us a little bit about your background. For sure. So uh, let's let's start at the beginning. I'm a fifth generation rancher's daughter. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, inherent love for not just agriculture, but frankly, ranching, ranching in the West, because um, we're based here in northeastern Colorado. So uh, that's that's kind of where where life started. Uh, but then I I had that inborn love and, and made the choice to make it actually a career path. So I you know went to went to high school here in, in Akron, Colorado, and then went down to Texas to for my education. I was an animal science major, so a lot of the fun correlations of being science lovers. And then I, I decided to focus in on ruminant nutrition. So for, for the lay audience, uh, ruminants is, you know, we're simple stomached animals or mammal or within our, you know, our way our system is put together, but ruminants, they actually have four compartments to their stomach. So for examples, it'd be cattle, bison, deer, uh, sheep, goats, etc. So that's uh, where I focused in on my studies in ruminant nutrition. And then I, I found a, a particular parallel with nutrition and health. So that's uh, my educational background was I'm actually a trained cow nutritionist uh, per se, but uh, focusing on on where we we can focus on health and nutrition, which then took me to actually in private industry. And I've been working in animal health for the past 10 years. So a uh, pretty good intersection between you know the ranching portion, but then also the health piece. I work with veterinarians on a on a daily basis, and and have some of that that fun background there. So, 
It's so fascinating. Like we debate all day online about what to eat, right? Is meat good for us? Should we eat beef? Uh, does, does red meat cause cancer? But nobody thinks about what their, what their meat eats, what your food eats, you know, the food that your food eats. And that's the incredible things about cows is they're able to take a plant and turn it into an amazing fat and protein source for us. So let's talk about this because this is definitely kind of your area of expertise. Let's talk about cattle nutrition and what, what role does that even play? Why does it matter what our cows eat? So it is so fascinating. We have some of the same or correlating parallels that you have in, in human health is, you know, we have veterinarians that they focus primarily on animal health. Um, and then, you know, they may have had one nutrition class at, throughout vet school. And then we also have, you know, people more in, in my field of the nutritionists that focus solely on what cattle eat. And we've had numerous nutrition classes, you know, all of the, the basic science as far as the nutrition of what they eat and how that correlates, correlates into what we will be eating. Uh, but then the, the health piece may, may not be as much of the conversation. So that's been where I've kind of found my niche, let's say in my career uh, and with the ranch, et cetera, is, is figuring out how we, we balance or, you know, I've heard you talk on podcasts as well of harmonize these two, not necessarily, you know, the, the balance, but where those, those interface and how they do and how we can, can optimize both of them to produce the, the high quality product that we love in beef. So, I mean, really, we want to be eating healthy animals. Is that what you're saying? Like, it's it's important that you're eating a healthy cow? Definitely. I mean, that's that, on this this side of the, the beef product, you know, in the cattle chain, that's we're we're focused on that every day is how we keep cattle healthy uh, so they can produce a high quality, healthy product for an end consumer. Right. We just, yeah, it's, it's really, it's funny. And I, I've had to have some conversations with ranchers about this of, you know, you, you go on a ranch and you ask them, what do you produce? And a lot of times they will say, oh, well, I produce, you know, a, a 800 pound steer and I sell them at X time, or, you know, maybe I produce a 500 pound heifer calf and steers, steer calves. And I always sell them in October. Uh, and we have to take a look back or look at ourselves and be like, well, actually we produce beef. That's what we produce. You know, we're, of course, we're producing a live animal, but that is what's driving our market is producing this beef product. And that's where, you know, some of the inception of Colorado craft beef came from was getting that connection back to our consumer because that consumption of beef and our production of beef is really what drives our market and drives the, the demand of what we're doing. So, what problems do we have now with traditional? cattle production with nutrition. What are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? What's the optimal diet for a cow? Oh, yeah, that, that can be heavily debated. Uh, one, of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the great beauties, though, of a ruminant, specifically, you know, a cow is, as, as we mentioned before, they basically can upcycle because they are ruminants. So they can consume these forages on these non-arable lands that we aren't using for crop production or development or other uses. They're able to use this, this land to take that grass and convert it into a high quality protein, which is just one of the beautiful things of a cow in general. Uh, then we have the, you know, that end product of beef that comes from that. 
Uh, but there's there has is a lot of debate on you know grass fed grass finished which sometimes is is kind of semantic related because really a, a cow by the time they're consumed you know they've spent like 60 to 85 percent of their life on grass and then you know maybe the other the other portion could have been in a feed yard depending on how they're finished but the majority of their life is spent on these this ground that really we didn't have any other uses for so it's it is a beautiful thing about cattle in general uh when we we relate that back to health you know we we on you know the ranching side producing cattle we're we're always looking looking at optimizing health and so much of that does come with nutrition uh i've i've spent basically the last 10 years of my career having the conversation about I, i'm not going to change you know what you're doing on your operation through a needle that's that's just that's not going to happen it's a holistic approach to how we're feeding these animals because the biggest input we have is feed to them so you know how their their diet is to keep them healthy and you know the water sources that go along with that because a lot of times we have mineral antagonists that can cause problems in in cattle nutrition if we don't pay attention to our water sources as well because we have quite a few that are coming that direction so balancing that piece of of health with nutrition because it's kind of that basic level that that needs to be there to be able to optimize health because um, if nutrition suffers as you well know then then health suffers along with it so yeah okay so you said cows are supposed to graze and eat grass you may not know the answer to this. Maybe you do, but in the United States, what percentage of cattle are actually raised that way? Or is a large part of the industry grain fed cattle that aren't grazing? So when we talk about it, as far as segmenting parts of the industry, in general, all of these cattle, even if they went into the feed yard, they have spent a big majority of their life grazing grass. So it's, you know, it's that 65 to 85% of their life was spent grazing prior to entering a feed yard. Um, so that's that is really the biggest difference with beef compared to the other protein sources, you know, unless you're getting into sheep and goats, etc. But they have spent that majority of their life on grass from the time they were born uh, until they they entered that feedlot phase. So uh, we do have have a little, you know, we have a different anomaly in the beef industry compared to the other protein sources, because uh, that's not the case, you know, in the poultry industry or in the swine industry. It's just that that's not, that doesn't happen. So. Okay. And can you explain again for me and our listeners too, about ruminants and their digestive system and why this grazing on the grass is, is ideal for them and their digestive tract essentially. So they, they, they do have one stomach, but it's four compartments to the stomach. So these feedstuffs go through these different compartments um, and their their rumen, it's basically like a large fermentation vat. So in that you're feeding them the microbes that are in that rumen, which allows for them to be able to digest these grasses differently than like us or, you know, a haul, you know, swine or poultry with their simple stomach. It's kind of what comes in, goes out. But with a, a ruminant, we're feeding those those bugs so they can change what comes into their system to be able to make it usable to them. Uh, it's it's very it is very different than our systems. So um, that is one of the beauties of of a ruminant animal in general. Okay, so 
Let's pivot a little bit and talk about life as a cattle rancher. You became a mom in the last couple of years, uh, twice, two little girls, right? Two little girls. Okay. All right. Well, you need one more because three is having three daughters is just the best. You're listening, Jeff. I know you're listening. We need one more little girl. Um, okay. Talk to us about, talk to us about life on the cattle ranch. What's it, what's it like being a mom, especially it's, you know, it's incredible. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons that we were relocated back to, you know, we, we live a half a mile from the original homestead of where our ranch was founded in the early 1900s. And, you know, when we were considering having a family, that was one of the biggest reasons that we moved back here. Because, uh, you know, reminiscing about how I grew up, there's, I, there's things in life that I couldn't, I knew I could not instill in our children without being here and experiencing the things that I've experienced. Um, you know, experience a, a newborn calf being born and or a foal or you know, all of the the new life that has brought to this place. Uh, well, just ranching in general. Um, some of that, you know, is is the loss that goes along with it. But also the the hard work that that goes into producing food but you know the the kind of life that it that it takes to do this and we we get to spend a lot of quality time with our kids too you know it's kind of you can take them to work every day if if you choose to you know they can go move cows with you or feed cows or uh check waters like my oldest daughter she's she's about three now and her favorite thing is to go check waters with gramps across the road like just, I mean, she may talk him out of a popsicle after that as part of the reason, but she just like, it just excites her so much. Um, yeah. And one of my, you know, favorite memories as, as a child and even now is watching the sunrise from horseback while you're gathering a pasture. Like there's just nothing that can relate to that. And I knew I could yeah. not teach them that somewhere else. It's just, yeah. It's like real life skills, just like work ethic and getting ethic. up early and getting things yeah. done. And yeah. And, and understanding where their food comes from too. That That's yeah. a big thing for me is I, I want them to know where their food comes from. They may be the kid in kindergarten that upsets some children's parents because they will tell them that their steak they're eating came from a cow and you know some of those debacles but to me I'm I'm unapologetic about that because I do want them to know where their food comes from yeah yeah I think it's so important it's it's so important those are great lessons that your girls are are learning well let's talk about that a little bit about feeding a family um our family of course eats a lot of beef. Um, we buy a whole, you know, half beef <laughs> at a time basically, uh, because that's how much meat we go through, but let's just talk about kind of your passion with nutrition and animals and how that translates to nutrition and humans. Sure. Actually becoming an, a mom or, you know, thinking about the, the path to become a mom was when I took more thought into what you know I would be eating but also what my children would be eating and um, because there there's some we'll talk about this later but there's some fun cow science you know talking about fetal programming and so when I was looking at becoming a mother I was like this is important because before that I may have not put as much effort into nutrition as I probably should have uh, I've always been a little bit more metabolically blessed per se. So I didn't have to have as much conscious thought about what I was putting into my body. 
Uh, but when it when it came to the point where I was feeding my body for my baby, then that that changed that significantly. Um, I've always been more or less a carnivore. I mean, I I love beef, always have, always will. Uh, basically, though, you know, animal based was always kind of where I I land and still do. And I always knew that you know I wanted to fuel my body with complete proteins because um, I knew the, the importance of that. Um, but you know, sometimes you. Yeah, I, I like ice cream too. And, you know, some of those, those other things that are uh, maybe not quite as nutritious for you, but so that was, that was where it started was making sure that my body was healthy to be able to nourish another body or another human. Um, and then that whole journey of pregnancy and, and birth, like I, I just, I knew, I knew I needed to make sure that was where it needed to be. Uh, and that's become even more heightened since having my girls. Um, I, I think about what goes into their body on a daily basis. And frankly, beef is the top of, of my list. Beef and, beef and dairy are two of the big ones that, that they, they consume the most of. Um, so they, they have milk at every meal and we, we beef at least probably twice a day, if not more sometimes. Um, you know, that's, one of the, actually their first protein, you know, as far as not just your know, milk was uh, filet. They're a little bit bougie in the in my the beef kids realm. Are too. <laughs> oh my gosh, my oldest daughter. If you ask her where she wants to go for her birthday, she chooses like the best chop house near us, and she wants filet mignon. Like the kid yeah. is like she's programmed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my my kids are too. They uh, yeah. they might have have a tough time. They've got a a boyfriend later in life that tells them they're going to cook them the best steak. They, I'm not sure if they'll believe that. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So when you were pregnant, um, were you doing any like organ meats or anything like that? Bone broths or was it mostly just beef? Um, mostly beef bone broth though. Um, I did incorporate that, especially postpartum. Uh, that mm. was, that was one of, one of the big things that I, I made sure to incorporate, but like a lot of women in my first trimester, food aversions were crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and any meat was, it was tough for me, uh, which is, was really hard <laughs> coming yeah. from, uh, I love beef and eat it pretty much all the time. And to where it just, that it was more of a struggle for me. So in my first trimester with both of my girls, I had to be very diligent about protein. And that is just food. not uncommon. I've had just even my most carnivore patients. They're like, it's crazy. I, I can't even like look at it, smell it. Mm -hmm. The first trimester is just brutal sometimes in pregnancy. Yeah. 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 It was. But then after that, I tried to make sure that that was the top of the list to, you know, fuel, fuel my body. And yeah. Yeah. But bone broth is a great thing in pregnancy too. Um, a lot of people don't know bone broth is high in glycine. So people who take collagen supplements, the same type of amino acid content you're going to find in bone broth, you get all that nice connective tissue. If you, if you let bone broth cool down, it actually forms this gelatinous layer. That's all the collagen in there. And glycine is an amino acid that our body can typically make, but in pregnancy, because of the increased amino acid needs, it actually becomes conditionally essential in pregnancy. Um, it's one of the theories why people can maybe get stretch marks um, due to the collagen breakdown in the skin. Um, so more glycine for all the pregnant people out there listening and, and bone broth is a great way to get that. So Kara uh, probably has access to, to making some, some homemade bone broth, which is the best kind, the best kind. 
Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about regenerative ranching care. I feel like there's kind of this, it's like the buzzword going around regenerative farming. What, what is, you guys don't produce anything but beef, correct? Like you're not growing crops, correct? Correct. Our, yeah. our ranch, the last time it was farmed was when my dad was still in high school. Uh, it was like the early 1970s. Uh, and we still actually have the haysickle parked in front of our place here because that's kind of where it, it landed. I mean, <laughs> my, my grandpa was like, that's it. We're, we're done. This will be the last time we farm on this place. And it just, it wasn't made for that. It was made yeah. for running cattle. So, well, and when I visited your, your ranch, you guys live in a part of the United States, which is connected to a part of Nebraska called the sand Hills, which is a very different type of soil. Um, and I think that Jeff was kind of explaining to me when I was there that, uh, it's not really great farm ground per se because of the high sand content, but it's also like, smoking hot. So it's, it's hard for the, the, the cattle. Can you talk a little bit about your soil and kind of the, the difference from a lot of traditional farm ground? Sure. Yeah. We, uh, in general, you know, being more in the American West rain and precipitation is, is an issue, which it takes quite a bit of that to grow mm -hmm. anything, but especially, you know, row crop farming, uh, there's, there's only certain crops that you can, can do well with dry land. Um, and, and our soil is not the best for that. We, we do have a high sand content. Uh, it does not make it very suitable to be able to be farmed, especially tilled, uh, because we also have wind. So then you run into wind erosion issues um, like they did in the Dust Bowl, frankly. That's something that when you, when you break that ground, then you're more apt to wind erosion. Um, and, and that's something that we always take a cognizant thought of how much forage we leave even after grazing to make sure that 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 forage is still there, the root base is good, and that forage can catch moisture in the form of snow, which is something you may not even think about. But uh, when we have that higher standing forage, it can catch snow, essentially catching that that water to be able to regrow that grass next spring with its growing season. Um, so yes, that's we're we're not the best suited place to be able to farm. So cattle are are the best op option on on our ranching operation, uh, and that's something that you know we we don't take take lightly as far as how we graze the ground that that we're you know stewards of per se, and we always think about the. When, when I think about regenerative ranching, I think about it more of kind of the harmony of nature. So figuring out where that intersection is between the land, the animals, uh, the water, and then of course, you know, us as, as people that, that are on the land and, and the stewards of it. Um, so those are, those are things to kind of consider as far as the regenerative ranching space. Um, I, I'd say it's, it's kind of more of a new buzz term, but, or yeah. buzzword. Yeah. Uh, but it's what we've been doing since we we founded here is yeah. is that is you know making sure that we are having a cognizant effort of of what we're doing with the resources that we have on our ranch. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just such an attack on the you know beef cattle animal industry with when it comes to environment that you know I think it's important to highlight that you know, what you're doing is good for the land. You know, you talked about the cycle. Like, I think I always think of it like 
in, I remember in elementary school, right? You drew like the line from the sun and the sun is giving energy to the grass and the beef is eating the grass. These cows are actually putting carbon energy back into the soil. Um, you know, the way that they manipulate the land and the manure that goes back into the land. Um, so I think it's important to understand that, um, it's actually good for our environment to have these, these cattle where they are. And like you said, this is not land that could otherwise really be used for, you know, other agriculture. And that's the problem for people listening with a lot of traditional farmland is it's called, it's called monocropping. So this, you know, let's say this field like only gets corn or soy or whatever grown on it year after year after year. And it's consistently depleting all these different nutrients in the soil and it's causing erosion of the soil and, um, these animals can actually fix that. So for people Kara, that have both those ag, is it like they rotate fields? Like they bring animals into these fields intermittently, or how does that work as far as kind of farms that do that? So in, in our area, a lot of that would be grazing aftermath. So like, and, and it'd be similar in Nebraska as well. Yeah. There, there's a lot of cornfields. So after those cornfields are harvested, a lot of times the, you know, the mature beef cow is put back out on the cornfields to be able to graze that. Um, so that, that is a piece where they kind of have an, an intersection of, you know, ground that had been farmed, but then also a cow can come back and utilize some of those resources that are there you know, and then plant manure, et cetera. And, and it's a, it, it really is a good symbiosis for, you know, nature to be able to do some of those things. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that that does happen in the beef industry. Uh, the beef industry feeds a ton of byproducts as well of other industries. So they're able to take feed sources, you know, that may have been in some cases thrown away um, and then produce a high quality beef product with it just because of the nature of you know, what a cow can eat and what they can do with it. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some of those types of things. Um, but even, you know, these native pasture lands, having, having the a carbon sequestration area is, is really a, a cool thing. Uh, cause a lot of these ground, like say, if it was tilled at one point in time, they realized that it probably shouldn't have been. And then it went <laughs> back into grazing land. And then, you know, we, we keep that, that carbon locked in that soil. Um, but yeah. we're all also able to produce a high quality protein product from that. Yeah. Do you guys have any other animals besides cows? On the ranch? We, well, you know, we have all of our other critters, right? So <laughs> horses, because um, we do pretty much everything horseback still here okay. on the ranch. Um, so horses are a big piece of that. And Real cowboys and cowgirls. Yeah, that's pretty much everything is still done that way. You know, we have some places that it's just, it'd be really hard to get a motorized vehicle into as well. And, and I just, from a, from a stress level, you know, using an animal to move an animal just it seems to to work a little a little bit better, especially the when you start running yearlings that really kind of don't know what they're they're doing anyways. <laughs> Having a, a horse to be able to move them is is really helpful. Um, and then of course we have our dogs and our cats, and I'm sure we will collect more critters along the way because my girls are critter lovers like I am. So I love it. I love it. Yeah. We got to meet, uh, I think you had a, uh, one of the horses was just born. I think you had a little one when we were out there a couple of years ago and, uh, yes. And of course the, the ranch dog that he's, he's in charge, right. All the time. Yes. The time. Yeah. The, the big white, uh, livestock guardian dog. He is, 
he is about 120 pounds of just, you know, pure love unless he's protecting his place. So I love it. I love it. Okay. Tell people how does, how does the cow go from being born to being on their plate at home? Can you talk about just the life cycle of like the cow and how long it takes to go to consumer and what that process looks like? Sure. Uh, so we in the beef industry, unlike a lot of the other protein industries, uh, we have a longer life cycle. Uh, it just, it takes longer for that animal to, to grow up, to be able to, to end up at a biological endpoint is what I would, would call it to, to be beef. Uh, so, you know, when they're born, they typically go from birth to about six months on a cow calf operation. So that's, of course, you have have mom cows and, and bulls and, and the primary business that that operation is in is producing calves. Uh, then they could go through a couple other steps before they get to your plate, depending on how somebody does their operation. But from there, they could go to what we call you know, a stalker or a backgrounder operation, which typically could take them from that six months till they're about, you know, you'd have them for another, well, oh, not, not quite a year. So a little bit less than a year, depending on what part of the world you're in, um, et cetera. So that, that could get them to about possibly 12 to 18 months by the time they go into a feed yard, if that's how they're finished. And then, you know, the feed yard setting is typically four to five months, depending on, you know, how, how big, how big a steer heifer, you know, that, that class of animal is when they enter that, that scenario. Uh, but one one important notation that that sometimes we don't understand because even some of us in the beef industry may not completely understand it either is the way we grade cattle in the US which is your USDA cattle grading system which is where you get you know like prime choice select like all of the different grades of cattle that typically come with you know a high end steakhouse or something you'd get from from us as a direct consumer beef business is they're under 30 months of age. That, that is a cutoff as far as if they can be graded, prime choice, et cetera. So they're under 30 months of age at that point to be able to go into that class of what we call fed beef. Mm. So if you wanna take a benchmark, you know, from, the, from back from the plate all the way back, that's where any of our fed beef that is eligible for these quality grades would, would need to be under that 30 months of age. Um, typically they're about 24 months, depending on if they went through a stalker sector or not. Um, some could be, you know, 18 to 20, but that, that would be about average. And who determines those grades? Like does a farm always produce prime beef or is it the, the process in which it's how it's fed? Like, how does, how does, how do you determine that this cow is going to be, or is it just when they butcher it, they grade the meat? Technically, it would be the latter. Um, so if you're going through USDA kill plants or you know, harvest facility that grades them, they would look at all of the, the pieces that come into that carcass that make it to where it could be graded. The first one would be they would have to be under 30 months of age to be able to be eligible for those quality grades. And then the, the internal fat, that marbling, is another piece of that. So that's how a, a carcass or, you know, if a steak, let's call it, could be graded prime or choice, et cetera, is the amount of internal fat 
that's in that particular you know carcass um and that so it's between the age and the so it's quality grade yield grade is the other one and then of course an a the age is a piece of that to be to allow it to be eligible for that grading but there are usda inspectors at these usda harvest facilities that look at these carcasses to determine that us as producers we're you know we're driving towards that on our end as well of course you know we we would take an animal to to harvest at that those particular specs to ensure that we're we are actually eligible for those grades and can can produce that kind of beef product okay so talk to me about the finishing process like with feeding them grains is how you increase this marbling is that right yes yeah, so basically it's a higher energy diet is what it is. So it allows so what makes for... humans fat makes cows fat. Exactly. There okay. there are a lot of correlations <laughs> besides we do not have a four compartment stomach. You know, that's yeah. that in a lot of ways there there are quite a few correlations between nutrition and human wise as well as cattle nutrition. Uh, but yes, it's that that finishing phase is it's a higher, higher concentrate, higher energy diet. Yeah, I was going to ask like the difference between, so what kind of grains are they getting? Where we live and where you live, the majority of it's corn. Okay. Um, There's some other parts of the world or well of the U.S., let's say, that use different products because that's what they primarily grow within their ag production. Um, So like you go down south into like, you know, like Lubbock, Texas area, they can use cottonseed, they uh, use wheat actually in some parts of that. Uh, But you know, corn really is still the biggest driver for for cattle feeding as far as an energy source. Does the type of grain they're given change the flavor texture of the beef? It can. Uh, It depends on the amount and how long. Um, that's, you know, our, that kind of buttery flavor that we get with the beef that majority of us get in the States, it, it comes with being corn fed. Like, so that, that is, that is a piece of it. You can change it to a point, um, not, I wouldn't say dramatically, but that's also the difference of the flavor that you would taste with a grass finished steak versus a grain finished steak is is it is a very different flavor profile and a lot of that comes with the fat um so that's that's one of the biggest differences well i mean there's something that's grass-fed and grass-finished is going to be a leaner cut of beef it is going to be leaner and and you're going to taste a difference in the fat as well so basically that's the the beta carotene that's coming from the grass and that's if you have a traditional like grass finished carcass or meat, typically it will be yellow fat. It will not be white fat because of the beta carotene that comes from the the grass instead of from the grain. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Um, I think these are things people never think about when, uh, um, talk about, uh, more direct to consumer. You guys sell right to people, right? Right. To from, from ranch to table, essentially. We do. Yes. How many ranchers are doing that? I mean, the vast majority is probably not that way, right? Yes. There's more that enter the space all the time. Um, but if we look at like how we're actually feeding the world, uh, that's a different dynamic because even here in the U S 
we're we're providing the world with 18% of their beef with only 8% of the cattle. Um, so it's it's still a, a larger scale type of of business to be able to produce that much beef to be able to feed the world. Um, so as far as going to direct consumer, the the numbers are a lot lower than you know somebody that say would still be in the commercial chain. Uh, it's it doesn't really hit the the radar as far as you know producing mass amounts of beef to be able what, to feed the world. What country produces the most beef? Actually, as far as cattle, I believe it's Brazil, if I remember right. Okay. They're, they're on the, the top end of that. Uh, but uh, I believe it was India actually has the most number of cattle because they're sacred. They're sacred. Yes. <laughs> they don't eat them, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic when you look at numbers versus actual production, you know, in pounds of beef. It's we're, we're, the, we're the top end of that as far as being able to produce the most pounds with the lowest number of cattle. So, okay. Fascinating. Okay. So, um, I want to, I want to shift now into talking about, you had mentioned earlier in the podcast about fetal programming or epigenetic programming. And this is something I've brought up on podcasts before. It's why I'm so passionate as an obstetrician gynecologist, because what women do during pregnancy. And I'm talking not just nutrition, but sunlight, stressors, sleep, all of these things can actually have epigenetic modifications on their baby's DNA. And it's not just in utero, then after we're born, so you and I listening, everybody, Kara, everybody that's on the podcast right now, our interaction with our environment turns our genes off and on. This is called epigenetics. And um, it's a fascinating area of medicine um, because we have the ability to turn these genes off and on through these epigenetic or methylation modifications. So Kara, I'm just excited to kind of like pick your brain because you had told me like when you were pregnant that this was kind of a revelation for you thinking about ranching and, and animal nutrition. Tell me about the world of epigenetics and cows. I, I am right there with you. It is so fascinating. And it did become a little bit more of a pet project of mine, you know, going down the, the motherhood journey of understanding these things. Um, I think that, that my husband sometimes you know, he call he lovingly calls me a cow nerd, but when I go down the rabbit trail of how does this correlate in cow science compared to human science, and um, you know, he he listens he listens I'm sure intently, but uh, that uh, that has been a pet project because we in in our industry we can you know correct me if I'm wrong here, but we can measure things a little bit more than you can in human medicine because it's we're we're producing an animal that you know is destined for us to consume you know that, that's a lot different dynamic than it is of course in human yeah and when you're talking about you know a life cycle being 18 24 yeah. 36 months as you know opposed to a human living to be 70 or 80 years anything that's why people study fruit flies <laughs> right. anything with a short lifespan you can you can study the aging process a little quicker <laughs> yes yeah and and we can study these outcomes a little bit easier you know we can truly measure reproductive performance in and that's one of the big places that they've they've talked about and and the research has been done is understanding what we're doing as far as fetal programming and you know feeding that cow and how it 
affects the heifers reproductive, you know, their fertility and their reproductive performance long-term. There is, there is more and more data all the time talking about that because we can measure that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how you'd be able to measure that, especially at large scale. How, how do you measure events. it in cows? How do you measure it in cows? So it's basically their, how easily they would take in their first cycle, or, you know, it's, you can truly measure you know, when you expose a heifer to a bull and when she conceives and, you know, what age she may have been. Um, and just those, uh, so much of the, the cow world is, we would like that heifer to breed within the first, within her first cycle, because if she doesn't breed within that first cycle, that puts that calf that much later born and that much smaller and less pounds of beef. And she breeds in that first cycle, then she has, she also has more time to recover, to be able to become rebred because that's a indicator of stability in the cow herd is that heifer, you know, first time, first calf heifer being able to rebreed and stay in the herd. So, you know, how many calves more or less she, she has in her lifetime to be able to stay in the herd until, she, you know, maybe she's a 12 year old cow because she was able to rebreed every year. And that's like one of the biggest economic drivers of a cow calf operation is having a cow bred. Otherwise they will not stay in your herd. Um, so that's some of the, the research has been that of the fertility of these heifers that came out of these cows that either, you know, they had plenty of energy or they may have been restricted of energy or they may have been restricted of protein or these big pieces of nutrition to where they, it truly did impact that fetus in utero for her lifetime performance. Uh, and that's just, it's, you know, it's something we've, we've always thought about. We know it's important to feed the cow, you know, but how much that impacts the the light I'm, I think has just been shed on that a little bit and will be even more um, to our to our yeah. conversation about the marbling that's another one that they that's been proven if there's energy restriction in utero that the ability for you know say if she has a steer calf for his ability to be able to be graded prime it may be less if that energy restriction was in, well, it, it is if that energy restriction was happened in utero. So fascinating. Yeah. Because of this conversation, of course, I had to go look at some, uh, uh articles and I found this one published in, uh, the journal animal. This was just in 2018. And this was basically the, the largest review that I could find of epigenetics, developmental programming and nutrition in herbivores. And so they looked at human and animal models that included ruminants and horses, and they basically highlighted the critical role of nutrition on developmental programming. And it was demonstrated that nutritional environment during the periconception period and fetal development can alter the postnatal performance of the resultant offspring. So that's exactly what you're talking about there, Kara, that if you have an improper diet, uh, while the calf is in utero, that that calf's performance to be, you know, prime beef um, is essentially altered. And um, it can actually affect both maternal and paternal lineages um, and can affect offspring beyond what they call the F1 generation. So is that basically the, the you have the first cow and then you have the next generation and then the next generation. So yes. you're talking about basically for generations to come. Yes. 
Yeah, and and we've we've done more research. I I'd, I'd probably say in the cow world because of the restrictions and and because we we can of how much that fertility you know of that heifer that becomes that cow has an impact on her progeny. Uh, so that you know that heifer that may have came from that heifer that was able to breed in the first twenty one days typically they are they are more fertile so that's they those genes perpetuate um so being able to to understand what we're doing as far as feeding that cow and you know that calf in utero does make a huge impact yeah it's just yeah these are just things we don't think about you know like the food we eat just you know how much sunlight they get how they're raised and all these different epigenetic modifications just add up over time. So it's obviously not a simple fix, just, you know, like with this cow, it's, you know, it's perpetual till end of time. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, Kara, tell people a little bit more about Colorado craft beef, if they're interested in your products or checking out your ranch. Sure. So you can find us on, on all social channels. Uh, it'll be at Colorado craft beef. Our, our website is coloradocraftbeef.com. Uh, so feel free to, to check us out. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we always, always say is, you know, we do feel like it's important to have a connection to your food and connection to the people that produce that food. Uh, Cause we are at this point, three to four generations typically removed from food production. Um, so having, having that connection back to you know, the land, the animals, the people that, that help make that that possible is is kind of where we stepped in uh, to be able to have have the voice for that and have that that consumer engagement. Um, any questions you have, we're we're happy to answer them. Uh, that's that's something we stand by is if if you have a question about ranching beef, et cetera, you know, even to this podcast, you know, momming and the the things that they go along with that, as far as food, beef, um, any of that, we we'd be happy to talk about it. That uh, right now, you know, we're we're looking at the holiday season, and it's a great thing to be able to maybe give uh, the gift of of health. Let's call it that you can give the gift of beef. So we have quite a few gift box options available, kind of from every price point. Um, I know that. When I first went off to college and you know had had no money and no other really resources and you're just going out to to get the world, when my dad would just pack up you know half a beef and send it with me, that was like the the best gift ever. I was like, that's all I want for Christmas. I just I just wanted a good beef to fill my freezer. So that's amazing. We love gifting beef for Christmas. It's like you know everybody's always getting sweets and treats or some gift that you don't really need and who can't use and love some super nutrient dense beef. So I think it's such a, such a great gift idea. If you guys are thinking of ideas for the holidays. Okay. So is one of these little girls going to take over the ranch one day? Is this, we're going to keep the, uh, keep the generations going there at Colorado craft. Well, that was actually one of the reasons that we started Colorado craft beef was just to to be able to take the ranch into the next generation, to to understand what that that may look like and and afford them the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I I want them to be able to make their own decisions. Uh, at this point, though, they they love they love the lifestyle and the critters and you know all of the things about it. And and a, we want the ranch to be able to to be here and be able to be you know let's call it sustainable 
to to afford that for for the next generation which is part of why we did what we did with craft beef is to be able to market a different way have a connection to our consumer uh, and just just move into a little bit different market uh, to allow the the opportunity you know and that that legacy for the next generation to be able to come back if that's what they choose to do i love it okay who cooks the better steak jeff or kara Oh, Jeff, 100%. (laughs) You heard it, Jeff. You heard it. Maybe the props. You're in charge of dinner tonight. (laughs) Yes, he's the cook in the family. It's so funny, even when, you know, he's traveling sometimes for work and and I'm in charge of cooking. And it's not that I'm a bad cook, it's just not really my forte. The the girls notice at this point and they're like, oh, that's funny. When's daddy coming home? That's funny. I love it. I love it. All right, you guys. Well, I hope you learned a lot about beef and ranching and maternal beef nutrition and how important it is just as important as, as humans. So Kara, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. I really, uh, really appreciate it. And I uh, wish you happy holidays, you and your whole family. Thank you. You as well. I appreciate the opportunity. It was great to chat. Did you guys love that last episode of the Fit and Fabulous podcast? Well, of course you did. And I want to keep bringing you the most amazing content from the most incredible people. And you can help me by subscribing to the Dr. Fit and Fabulous channel. You guys know where the button is. Just click it. It's the doctor's orders.